Welcome to the April 17th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is 2 Samuel chapters 1 and 2 and Luke chapter 14. Hopefully, you've already spent time in God's Word, so let's get started. Second Samuel chapter 1, let's begin uh, by reading verses 1 and 2. After the death of Saul, uh, David returned from defeating the Amalekites. Okay, so I just want you to take note of that. The relevance is going to show up in only a few verses. David returned from defeating the Amalekites. And he stayed at Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man with torn clothes and dust on his head came from Saul's camp. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. So, this man came to David in Ziklag. And David asked, assuming that he was from the battle, I guess that that was stated a little earlier. And so, uh, David asked how the battle between the Philistines and uh, the Israelites went. Uh, he didn't have Twitter, a, a Twitter feed. He didn't have, you know, an app on his phone to read the news as it was breaking. He didn't have any of that. And so, hey, you've got a messenger from, from there. You've got someone who was actually there. So David's asking, how did it go? And the man said that Israel was defeated. And he also said that Saul and his sons were dead. David wanted to know if this unknown man's report was legit. And in verse 5, it says, David asked the young man who had brought him the report, how do you know Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? What we do know is that this man that's talking with David is fabricating the story he's about to tell. He's making it up. It's not the way that the writer of 1 Samuel recounted it in the very last chapter of 1 Samuel. The death account that we read about in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 31 is not the way it happened here. This man is making it up. The man said that he was on Mount Gilboa when he saw that Saul had run himself through with his sword, but he was still alive. No, he wasn't. The true account is Saul ran himself through and he died and his sword bearer saw that he was dead and so the sword bearer, armor bearer, fell on his own sword. But this guy said, no, he survived uh, uh, the sword going through him. He was still alive and uh, according to this man, Saul asked him who he was and he said in verse 8, I'm an Amalekite. Okay, wrong answer. Amalekite, that takes us back to the fact that David had just gotten back from defeating the Amalekites who had previously taken all of his army's families and possessions. Further, the Lord had made it clear in the law of Moses in Exodus 17, 14 that the Amalekites were to be wiped off the face of the earth for what they had did to the Israelites when they left Egypt. So this unsuspecting Amalekite continued to speak to David by saying that he killed King Saul, but only as an act of mercy since Saul supposedly pleaded with him to kill him. Further, he had brought King Saul's crown for David to wear. This man seems to have been thinking that David would repay his actions by giving him a position of prestige in his new kingdom, or possessions, or something, that he would be rewarded in some way. But uh, 
the reward that he was going to get was not what he was expecting. David led his men to mourn and fast until evening over the deaths of everyone, including King Saul and his family. And then David focused once more upon the Amalekite who had brought the report. Listen to verses 13 and 16. David inquired of the young man who had brought him the report. Where are you from? I'm the son of a resident alien, he said. I'm an Amalekite. David questioned him. How is it that you were not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David summoned one of his servants and said, Come here and kill him. The servant struck him, and he died. For Satan, uh, for David had said to the Amalekites, Your blood is on your own head because your own mouth testified against you by saying, I killed the Lord's anointed. And then... At the end of chapter 1, we see that David wrote a song to be sung for forever to remember the tragic defeat of Israel's army and Israel's royalty. It wasn't just for he and his men to sing, but he also encouraged the people of Judah to sing it. Second Samuel 2 Okay, so let's begin, once again, reading verse 1. Sometime later, David inquired of the Lord, Should I go to one of the towns of Judah? The Lord answered him, Go. Then David asked, Where should I go? To Hebron, the Lord replied. Now, we don't know how the Lord was speaking to him, but we do know that he was clearly understanding this to be a word from the Lord uh, as he was inquiring. And uh, since the threat of King Saul and his army were no longer present, David took his family, his men and their families, to settle around Hebron. And if you look at a Bible map and locate the Dead Sea, then draw a line about 15 or so miles west of the center of the Dead Sea, and you're in Hebron. It's in the region of Judah, about 17 miles south of Jerusalem, and 8 miles south of David's hometown of Bethlehem. So he's getting back into his neck of the woods again. And while he was there, David um, was anointed as king. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. David had already been anointed by Samuel, but now the people of Judah are anointing him as their specific king. They told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. It's noteworthy that the men of Judah told David about the men in Jabesh-Gilead. We might suspect that they would love to brag on men in their own tribe, the tribe of Judah, but this issue was much larger. Jabesh-Gilead was not in the tribe of Judah. It was actually in the territory of Gad, and on top of that, it was on the eastern side of the Jordan River, on the other side of the Jordan River, and halfway up from the Sea of the Dead Sea to the Sea of Galilee. I mean, it was a good distance away. What we see is that God was beginning to prepare hearts to unite the people of Israel behind David. It would take some years, but God is beginning to cause them to see that uh, they are a unit. They are a big nation. 
These men of Judah had uh, probably heard the song of, that David wrote about Israel's defeat and uh, King Saul's death, so that they knew they knew that he would want to reward the courageous men who slipped into enemy territory to get his body and to bury it. So David s- sent word to Jabesh Gilead and thanked them for their courageous service to their nation and their former king. He also asked that they acknowledge that he was now the new king of Israel. However, Saul's former chief military leader had different plans. In verses 8 and 9, we read this, Abner, son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, right? Saul's gone now, but now you have the commander of Saul's army when he was alive. He took Saul's son Ishbosheth and moved him to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Asher, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, over all Israel. Okay, so this is not Ishbosheth who is rising to the throne after his father has died. This is an ambitious commander of the army who is treating the son of Saul like a puppet. I think Abner, and we see this over the next couple of chapters, we see Abner having selfish ambition, self-centered ambition. And so what we see is for two years, David ruled over Judah and Ishbosheth, that's in the south, and Ishbosheth reigned as king over the rest of Israel. In fact, we read that even though Ishbosheth's reign would only last for two years, David would rule from Hebron much longer. Listen to verse 11. The length of time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Beginning in verse 12, we read that Ishbosheth's commander led an army of Israel against David and his army, so it wasn't David that started this civil war, it was Abner. David and his army had no choice but to defend themselves, and so a battle ensued, and David's army prevailed. As Ishbosheth's army went into retreat, a foot chase ensued. Abner, Ishbosheth's commander, saw Asahel chasing after him. While Asahel was the brother of Joab, he was the younger brother of Joab, David's commander. Abner told him to stop chasing him or he would have to kill him, and Asahel refused to stop. And so Asahel, a soldier who had much more passion than experience, ended up dying when Abner ran a sword through him. In verses 25 and 26, it says this, The Benjaminites rallied to Abner. They formed a unit and took their stand on top of a hill. Then Abner called out to Joab. So these are two commanders. Abner is over Ishbosheth's army. Joab is over David's army. Then Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize this will only end in bitterness? How long before you tell the troops to stop pursuing their brothers? Brothers? Oh, when he's running for his life, he says that they're all family, but he's the one who initiated the fight with David's men in the first place until they overpowered him. Joab heard Abner's words, blew the ram's horn, and called off the chase. Abner led his men to cross the Jordan River and head back home. Joab retrieved his brother Asahel's body and buried it in Judah. We read in verse 32, Then Joab and his men marched all night and reached Hebron at dawn. It may seem like this story is is over, but it's not. 
Joab may seem okay on the outside, but inside, he's seething. He's filled with anger and thoughts of revenge. Abner killed his little brother, and he's going to make him pay dearly. We'll read about that tomorrow. Luke 14. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. One Sabbath, when he went in to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. So, we read that Jesus was invited to a prominent Pharisee's house for a meal, and apparently they had brought in a man who probably had cancer or some kidney or liver disease that caused his body to fill with fluid. And they were silently daring Jesus to violate the Sabbath by healing the man. What's insightful is that they assumed that Jesus had a heart of compassion, and they suspected that he would want to heal the man. Jesus' heart was all the more beautiful when compared to their hearts who were content to use this desperate man as a prop and dare Jesus to help him. Verses 3-6, through in response... Jesus asked the law experts, that's scribes, and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. Oh, I just bet that would have ticked Jesus off. He took the man, healed him, and sent him away. You know, he had some business to deal with. You know, this is going to be something between me and them. Um, Man, you were healed Keep that good attitude. Keep that happiness. Go on out and enjoy this beautiful day. And to them, he said, Which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? They could find no answer to these things. We find our hearts cheering at the belief. At the end of this brief story, our hearts go out to the man who has something desperately wrong with him, and yet Jesus heals him. But the Pharisees, remember, they weren't liberals. They were legalists. They were beating people over the head with scriptures. They were making it heavy and tying it around their necks, as it were. The Pharisees didn't care about people. So Jesus had to shut them up and help the man. Good. Verses 7 through 14, uh, we have some things that Jesus says about humility, because Jesus is still here at this meal. He's still in the Pharisee's house, and he's not finished. Um, So he was still there in the house, and he noticed that many of them had exposed their pride and self-centeredness when they chose chose where they would sit to eat. Listen to verse 7. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves. So... Jesus, if you read this, hopefully you read it, Jesus, you'll notice this, Jesus did not particularly reprimand them. He just told them that it would be better for them if they sat in a lowly place, only to be asked to sit in a more prominent place, rather than to sit in a place of importance and then be humiliated by being told that, hey, this seat's already taken, you need to take some inferior seat. It may seem at first glance that Jesus was telling them how to behave in such a way to keep their ego intact, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Sitting in a place of humility and waiting for someone to call them to a more prominent seat might never happen. (laughs) 
that would make it clear that they weren't as important as they thought they were. Jesus was saying it's better to sit at a humble seat and then have someone come and say, hey, sit up here in a more prominent seat. And so the Pharisees with their egos would have said, well, yeah, I would love for people to stroke my ego that way. And I'll go sit at a at a, a inferior seat and wait for somebody to invite me to a more prominent seat. Well, what Jesus was doing was setting them up because he knew that their inflated egos they were the only ones that thought highly of themselves. Nobody else did. And so when they took that humble seat, they would end up spending the rest of the meal in that humble seat. Jesus was playing them. And friend, remember that Jesus wants us to realize this isn't just about the Pharisees. It's easy to look down our nose at the Pharisees, but it's not just about them. It's easy for us to realize that we are much you know, that we're all that. But we need to realize that it's by God's grace that we are saved. It's by God's grace that we're invited into a relationship with the divine trinity. It's by God's grace that he gives us what we have each day. It's by God's grace that you woke up this morning. It's by God's grace that you have eyes that can see and a brain that's able to process what you see. It's God's grace that enables your stomach to work well. At any moment, he could turn things south with you and me. I tell you, any mindset that inflates our ego is wrong. But any mindset that, evalu uh, that elevates Jesus is good and wonderful. But Jesus wasn't done. Listen to verses 12 and 14. He also said to the one who had invited him, When you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, and blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus embraced the notion of using power and position to bless the less fortunate, to help and elevate them with our choices, and to be motivated to do that by rewards, but realizing that the reward is ultimately going to be on resurrection day when we stand before him and he gives us the rewards for what we did in him. Then we get to verses 15 through 24 and we have the parable of the large banquet. At this same gathering, Jesus is still at the Pharisee's house. They're still around this table. Maybe nobody's eating by this point. Some of them are royally offended. But at this same gathering, one of the men pronounced a blessing upon all of those presents. He, he assumed that every single one of them would enter the kingdom, that all of them would participate in the resurrection of the righteous. And so Jesus said, okay, I got to speak into that too. Verse 15, when one of those reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said, one of the Pharisees I scribe, or, or scribe said, blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It sounds as if he's kind of pronouncing a blessing over each one of those present as individuals. Well, Jesus saw yet another teaching moment, so he told a brief parable of a feast like they were all presently enjoying, or at least were enjoying. And in verse 16 and 17, Jesus says, A man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, Come, because everything is now ready. 
But then Jesus tells us that the initial group that was invited comes up with all sorts of excuses for not coming. My favorite is verse 20, where it says, And another said, I just got married and therefore I'm unable to come. (laughs) Nothing in the Old Testament law forbid a newly married man from attending a feast, so he might have added, It's my wife that won't let me come. (laughs) The master is told... (laughs) I know you guys out there chuckled, but uh, the women not so much so. I hope I didn't set any of you guys up out there who are sitting with your wife listening to this. The master's told that those who were invited wouldn't come. So the master, in his anger, it says he was angry, commands that the poor, maimed, blind, and lame, oh, this is the same list that Jesus told the Pharisee to invite into his house. He said, the master said, go out and get all of those people to be brought in. The master wants his house full. So what's this a picture of? That the people around the table, Israelites, were invited. They had been invited as God's chosen people to the feast, to a relationship with him. But overwhelmingly, they rejected the Messiah, the doorway to the feast. So the gospel call was going to be made to the Gentiles who would embrace Jesus as their Messiah. Verse 24, For I tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy my banquet. Once again, our minds go to Romans 9-11, through where Paul talks about how the Jews generally rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They still overwhelmingly reject Jesus as their Messiah. But what that has done is it's opened up the door of gospel opportunity according to Romans 9-11 through to the Gentiles, the poor, blind, lame, and maimed. And there is coming a time when the Jews are going to come back to faith in Christ. And we're looking forward with great expectation to the time that Jesus calls us home. Verses 25-35, through 35, we're going to see about the cost following Jesus. So at some point after the feast, Jesus was walking along the roads and through the fields. And in verse 25, it says, now great crowds were traveling with him. Great crowds were traveling with him. There is a Greek word, megas, which means massive. This isn't that word, but this is just a little bit lower than it. This is a huge crowd. It's not, it's not to where you can't count it, but it's a massive crowd. If someone was teaching or preaching truth today and they had large crowds, a great crowd that was listening to them coming each Sunday or or whatever, they would assume that God was blessing his word. They would be thankful for people who were hungry for the truth and that's not necessarily wrong and it may be partly right. But Jesus, Jesus often doesn't play by our rules. Many times his actions and words blow us away. They are counter cultural. So when Jesus had those great crowds following him, he would typically say something to disperse them. Listen to verses 25 and 27 through 27. Now great crowds were traveling with him, so he turned and said to them, "If anyone wants to come, uh, if anyone wants to come to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple." I think the crowd started to disperse. 
hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters? Was Jesus really calling them to hate even after he had said that the second greatest commandment was to love others as we love ourselves? I believe that what Jesus was saying was that our love for the Lord should be so great that our love for our family, which is immense, pales in comparison. Compared to the immense love and devotion and worship and adoration that we have for God, our love for our family looks like hate. And then he said in verse 27, "...whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple." Well, the cross was an agent of death. Whoever bore a cross was headed to the place where they would soon die. So what's Jesus saying? If we're to follow Jesus, we must die to ourselves. We shouldn't spend the rest of our lives living for ourselves, but instead, we ought to live for Jesus. We say no to us, we deny ourselves and our desires so that we can say yes to Jesus. But I've discovered that the closer you get to Jesus in love and obedience, the more we can say yes to ourselves because we want the same thing he wants. And then Jesus gives two illustrations in verses 28 through 33. Uh, one of a man building a tower and another of a man leading an army into battle. The important thing in these two brief, brief uh, you know, accounts, is that uh, they make sh that that uh, that these two people, the man, the builder, and the leader of the army, they made sure before they embarked on their endeavor that they had what they needed to accomplish their task. They counted the cost, and Jesus is saying that people need to realize what they're getting into when they get saved. They need to know that entering the kingdom of heaven isn't merely a ticket to stay out of hell and to get to heaven. Instead, it's a lifetime of following Jesus. People need to know that they're what they're committing to when they get saved. Committing to love the Lord, to grow in that love, to grow in obedience, to grow in submission, to grow in trust, to grow in relationship. And then Jesus tells us that someone who claims to be a Jesus follower is only worth something if they're actually maintaining the qualities of following Jesus. If they don't actually obey and follow him, their lives are worthless. Just listen as he gives this analogy. See if you can catch it. Luke 14, 34 and 35. Now, Jesus says, salt is good. And in fact, in Matthew 5, 13, we're told we are the salt of the earth. So he's talking about us. Now, salt is good. But if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. If we don't maintain our saltiness and follow Jesus, our lives are utterly useless and worthless. But to a true believer, that's not possible. I think what Jesus is talking about is someone who begins and does not finish because they were never truly saved. Someone who is truly saved while we will never reach perfection, not even close in this life, but in this life we will continue to be salt. We will be those who influence around us, influence people, for godliness. We're going to share the gospel. We're going to tell people about the Lord. We're not perfect. We're far from it. We're messed up. 
but people are able to sense that we have been with Jesus and we're going to maintain the qualities of salt just as he's told us to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to be what you have called us to be. You've said that we, those of us who are saved, are the salt of the earth. And that means that we influence and we do so for the benefit of your kingdom. We share the gospel, we help people grow in godliness, and we also demonstrate that godliness in our own life because we're so grateful for what you've done for us. Help us, Lord, to be effective in being salt. Who we run into, help us to always be aware that uh, you would desire to speak through us to them about the gospel and about you and what you can do in their life. Lord, I guess we're simply saying that we want to live a life on purpose. Thank you for hearing and answering this prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed today's episode and that it's helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you tomorrow.